sometimes I like to record my homilies just to listen to it later and reflect and improve. Uh, so first, an announcement. Um, just a reminder, we have a 24-hour adoration tomorrow uh, from 6 p.m. starting tomorrow night till 6 p.m. on Tuesday. There'll be some devotions tomorrow when we start and when we end with benediction. So everybody's obviously welcome, of course. Uh, um, if we ever hit the limit of 50, we've got to close the doors, but shouldn't be a problem. But just uh, uh, so please, please come uh, anytime you can get a chance in those 24 hours. We hear in our opening reading from Isaiah and, and, and that description, too, of the banquet in the gospel about that feast, that wedding feast, right? How the king, who is an image of God the Father, has slaughtered the fatted calves and the oxen. We hear in Isaiah, too, of the feast of, of rich food, the feast of well-aged wines. This is not... Um, this is no ordinary feast that's being described. I mean, it's ultimately meant to be an image of the heavenly feast we have with God. But it's a feast that is greater than even what we would eat for, for Thanksgiving, etc. It is, it is a lavished feast. There is more than we could have. It is a sign of abundance and celebration but as we go through Isaiah's reading, God makes this promise. But then it, it, there's this weird part in it. Then it talks about a shroud that's covering Israel, that God's going to rescue all of Israel from. This shroud covers the people of Israel. It darkens them. It darkens their ability to encounter God. This shroud, as Isaiah says, is the spirit of death. I mean, ultimately, yes, physical death, death as the separation from God. But that spirit kind of looms over Israel. And remember, I've said it a few times now, whenever you hear Israel in the Old Testament, remember to always think, too, about the church, who is the new Israel. The shroud is always going to hang until Christ comes again. God promises to remove it. And this removal brings about a response in, in Israel through Isaiah's words. He says, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. To go a bit deeper with that, you know, waiting is not just something we do passively. Waiting's an expression of desire. The image that came to my mind when I was preparing this was, uh, you know, when you're a kid and you're at home and you hear the ice cream truck coming down the street, you run and get your allowance and yet you run outside and stand on the sidewalk and wait for the ice cream truck to come. You're waiting, right? The anticipation of Christmas morning for a child, etc. All these are forms of waiting that are an expression of desire. And thus, for Israel, though this shroud covers them, and it wants, and the shroud is an attempt to kind of kill that waiting desire, they yet wait regardless. They look for their God. They build up their desire for him by waiting for him, anticipating his final move. This spirit, this shroud that covers Israel is also expressed through the guests 
that we hear of in the parable, the first round of guests, we have to remember that when uh, someone is having a wedding in, in kind of the Old Testament time and in Jesus' time, you were never given a save-the-date card. You were told a, a rough period of time when the wedding would, become, would happen so that when the servants would come to you, you would drop everything and leave right away. You'd put on your wedding robes and you would go to the celebration. You would drop your work. Whatever you had to drop, you would to go to the wedding. That was, it, was, it was built into their culture. It would be an affront to the guests, to the, to the bride and the bridegroom to not go. But yet these guests dismiss it, have no interest in it, because they've given in to the shroud that hangs over. And this shroud that hangs over, it, it, it's many things, but I was particularly struck by the attitude and responses of the guests, because it's, a, it's an expression of a, of a spiritual sin. We, we, it's known in the Christian tradition as acedia. A-C-E-D-I-A, Assyria, comes from the Christian East, from the Desert Fathers. It's part of their, what they categorize as the eight evil thoughts. And it became the root for the West of the seven deadly sins. And so the corollary for Assyria in the West is sloth. But it's more than just a laziness and a lackadaisical attitude towards life. It goes deeper. Acedia is an affliction of the soul that kills desire. Acedia is an affliction of the soul that kills desire. What it does is, it, it, the pithy way I often like to, to try to define acedia is that it, it, kill, it, it creates in us the inability to desire the good, the inability to desire the good. So you're invited to an amazing feast, a dinner like no other, and your attitude is, meh, I'll go home and have craft dinner. That's acedia, and that's the guests. That's their attitude in the gospel. And so we see, I, there were three responses that I noticed in the guests. And so, uh, just to break them down, because these are all expressions of acedia. First, we hear that they made light of it and went away. They were dismissive, dismissive of it. They kind of even made fun of it. They made fun of the generosity of the king. They could care less of the great gift, the abundantly huge gift that was being offered them. And they just didn't want it. But then Matthew, I mean, every word in Scripture is so important. Matthew says that the guests went away. They went away. You see, acedia often expresses itself in a kind of aimlessness of life. We're just kind of trying to survive. Uh, this often just trying to numb things in our life, whatever. Acedia has no direction. Matthew says they went away. There's a lack of direction there. There's no ultimate goal. There's no path. 
That's ascidia. Just wanting to kind of wander safely through life without any care for what ultimately is being given us. Then we hear that there are those who went back to his farm, to his business. So as I said, ascidia, while it can express itself in laziness and carelessness, like not giving a care, being dismissive of the good things that we are given each and every day, it can also express itself in an excessive busyness as well of doing too much. And so the guests who go back to their business and to their farm are those who overwhelm their life with too many things. They busy themselves with many things, but do not choose the things that matter. This is Jesus' line uh, to Martha, right? Martha, Martha, you busy yourselves with many things, but you forgot the one thing that's necessary. They're not, do, they're not doing the necessary, which in this moment is to go to the wedding feast. They're avoiding it by saying, I'm too busy, I gotta work. And then there's the third response, which might catch us off guard, because it's very violent. Right? It says, some of these guests seized the slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. See, the ultimate goal of acedia is not to make us only just stop desiring the good which is God himself and the things that we need to do and choose for our vocation and state in life it actually makes us want to hate it that's its ultimate goal to hate the good and you'll do anything to dismiss it and get rid of it so that it doesn't remind you. And so these slaves remind them of what they've been invited to, and they hate it. They want nothing to do with it. They don't even want to be reminded of it, and so they beat, seize, and kill them. They hate the king. Because Asidia ultimately wants us to hate the good. Now, I, I'm speaking about this sin for a few reasons. I mean, one is I can tell you personally that, that this is it's one of those sins that I've always struggled with. Once I learned about it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's me right there. And I, I've studied it a lot, obviously, and I've prayed through it. I've worked through it a lot in my life as well. It still likes to find its ways in here and there, obviously, but um, it's something I've worked very hard against, so I'm well aware of it personally in my soul. But also, as someone who's been a priest for a while, it's really, I would call it, there's a, there's a book on Asidia called The Noonday Devil by Abbot Nault, N-A-U-L-T. And he calls it the sin of our age because this is an age that's forgotten how to desire. We've forgotten how to desire God. We've forgotten how to want God. And even we feel this when we, when we try to live our life of faith. Sometimes... Desiring God is very, um, it's, it's very small. It's not the infinite expanse that it ought to be. We feel this ourselves, and I, I hear it a lot as a pastor. And so we need to kind of be aware of it, not to kind of beat ourselves up, but just to say, yeah, oh, wait, this is a reality that I need to address. And so what, where does it, what does it look like? Okay, we've, we've kind of gone through the parable. 
what does that look like today for us? Let's go down from the theory, let's get a bit more into the concrete. It's that moment when you know you ought to spend some time in prayer, but instead you pick up your phone and scroll for 15, 20, 30, 45, however long you want minutes. By the way, a great sign, if you want to know how much you might use, how much, if you're suffering from Isidia, if, you, if your screen time on your phone is more than a few hours a day, it's probably a good sign. You can just go on your apps and it'll show you in the settings, your screen time. It's a good little check to the conscience. <laughs> I remember when I saw it, I was like, whoa, <laughs> way too much. But it's like choosing the distraction. Distraction, it means to disattract, to move our attraction to something else. To distract ourselves from what we need to do in the moment, which is to choose God. It means instead of after dinner, you know it's your job to do the dishes, but you go and sit and watch TV for three hours instead. And we all know what happens. It gets close to bedtime, we're too tired, and we leave it till tomorrow. It often manifests itself, and the Desert Fathers really, and we'll talk more about ordering in a second, they said the ascetic is someone who suffers from an ill-ordered life. There's no rhyme or rhythm to their, to their day and to their week and to their month and to their year. There's nothing, there's nothing sustaining each and every day. It's just one thing after another, etc. Finally, and I think this is perhaps, I mean, again, this is perhaps a little abstract, but it's, it's, it's really the heart, the spirit of it all. It wants us, essentially it wants us to avoid the good that's put in front of us. And according to our state in life. So like an example actually that where it can manifest itself is if we've got a family with like four kids, but we spend six hours a day praying in the church, that's actually acedia, actually. Because you're not looking after, you're not choosing the good that is your family and looking after them. That'd be acedia. If I've ever found someone doing that, I'd kick them out and send them home. Because they should be there. That's where they should be. Like I... If you found me playing golf each and every day and never praying and never being in the church, that'd be a sedia. I should be here more praying because that's part of my state of life. You see, it's all according to our state of life. What do I need to do that God has given me in my mission in life? What do I need to choose concretely each day? And often what it'll do is it'll say, hey, do you what? You're not so happy today. Wouldn't things be better if you had this? Wouldn't things have been better if you'd chosen a different spouse? Wouldn't things have been better if you made a different career choice? It makes you want to resent what God has given you, to hate it, and to lose the giftedness of the moment. Really, we need to accept the gift of our vocation and state in life, and we need to accept the gift of the moment that God has given us. You see, God is always chosen through concrete things, the things that are in front of us. You want to love God? Do the dishes. <laughs> you want to love God? Tell your spouse you love them. God, choose something concrete. That's how you discover God. That's how you encounter him. Benedictines get this very, very well. It's okay. 
and I mean, there's more, there's a lot more that we can talk about that I just obviously can't get into in a homily, but I do want to give you a few tips on how to fight it. The first one is, okay, we talked about disorder. Order the day. All of us have three or four things a day that we need to do for our life of faith, for our jobs, for the maintenance of our houses, and for our vocation in which we live in. And it's going to look different for each person. Make sure those things are the center point of your day. Ensure that they're going to be the first choice. May not have to be the first thing you do that day, but that all your other choices go around it. It's so important. Because, like, yeah, if, if it's like, okay, um, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I, it's my turn to make dinner. Make sure that you're not booking other things so that you say, hey, honey, can you, uh, can you do the dinner tonight? I want to go and do this. No. Do the thing that you need to do in your household. Make that your first priority. And then, and if you can't do the other thing, say no to the other thing. It's okay. I'll talk about busyness in a second because we've become too busy. Second one is prayer. Now, I said, obviously, I, you know, if you're married with kids, you shouldn't be here six hours a day, but prayer should be a sustained part of our day. And I say this, and I, could, I say this because I've, I've worked on this myself, and I've challenged myself to it, because I hate mornings. The mornings suck. <laughs> but they're the best time to pray. The best time. Why not give God the first fruits of your day? And not just a little morning offering and then going off. If we're not giving God 15 minutes of sustained prayer a day, then we don't want God. We don't want him. We need to give him something to encounter him and know him each and every day. It could be praying the rosary and meditating on those mysteries, praying with scripture, just giving God some silent time. And you know I keep on harping on this because it's so important we need some silent time in that prayer that we give to God. But give him those first fruits. We need to do that. Make prayer the first choice of your day. Because we all know what happens. Oh, okay, I'll pray a bit later. And then when that time, I'll pray a bit later. I'll pray a bit later. And then nighttime comes. I'm really tired. I'm going to go to sleep. We don't pray at all. Make God the first choice of your day. Prop, and this is the other thing, because like I said, we're too busy. We don't know how to slow down. We need proper leisure. We need proper rest kind of incorporated into our days. We, you know, like, for example, like I've known families who have their kids in 10, 15 activities. I'm like, you guys don't know how to rest. And then this is the problem. It gets to be too much. And then we just go on our phone for two hours because we're so burdened, we just want something numbing to do because we haven't scheduled proper rest and leisure into our days and into our weeks, especially Sunday. Make Sunday a day of rest, a real day of rest. You know, just as a little instruction, I never call Monday my day off because it's not. You don't take a day off from being a priest. It's my day of rest because I need leisure. We all need leisure. We all need rest. And if we're doing too much that we can't have it, then we're doing too much. And we need to kick that stuff out. 
so that we can choose the essential things of life. Now, in the concrete moment, when we're tempted to not pray or to not do the dishes or whatever the thing is, this is what I call, for those who are Seinfeld fans, the George Costanza method. There's an episode in Seinfeld where George Costanza realizes that everything he's done in his life has never gotten him the results he wanted. He's always puffed himself up. I, I work for Vandalay Industries and imports, exports, right? Uh, trying to become an architect. I work for the Yankees. He's always puffing himself up with all these grand titles and no relationships, nothing sustaining happens. And so he decides, this is the whole episode, that he's going to be opposite George. He's going to do the exact opposite of what he always does. And there's a great scene where he's going into a restaurant, he sees a couple ladies at a table one day, there, and he goes to introduce himself. Instead of giving all those grandiose titles, do what he says? I'm broke and I live at home with my parents. Can I get your number, she says? <laughs> You're so honest. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Opposite George. So the method of opposition, the George Costanza method, I don't want to pray, pray. Now, you got to be careful with this, obviously. You don't want to... We shouldn't have to pray all day. That's not... Most of us, that's not our state of life, but... The thing I need, okay, I haven't done my 15 minutes yet. Okay, I'm going to pray. I want to go watch that game. Do the dishes first. Then go watch the game. Get things in good order. Make those proper choices first. And it will, because here's the thing, that's where the spiritual battle is, is in that choice. That's where God is wrestling for our heart to build up our desire. And by saying no to these things, our desire builds up. Our desire builds up. Our love for God increases. And we find ourselves deeply and passionately in love with God and in love with our vocation and in gratitude for all that he has given us. Desire no longer becomes something subtle and kind of there, not much. It becomes impassioned. You know, Pope Benedict talks about this as the eros of love, desirous love. We start to experience God's love for us and for others. It becomes God gives us his desire to build it up so we can want him more and more. And then we can say with Israel, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. We have desired him because we've been doing and making the choices to desire him. We've waited We've waited him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation, which he gives us in Jesus. For the hand of the Lord will rest on his mountain.